Hey thinkers, welcome to this week's Thinking Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm really excited to have Ben Kumba, who is a long-standing podcast host of one of the top United Kingdom health and fitness podcasts, as well as a, 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 a nutritionist and you know self-affirmed human performance geek. Um, so really excited to have this conversation and get your insights here. So welcome to the Thinking Podcast. Jeffrey, thank you very much for having me uh, on the show. Um, yeah, and I think I think I can kind of join the worldwide ranks now because this week we're at number seven, which is pretty cool in the world, my podcast. Yeah. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's a broad. I think it's a sign of a broader interest around all people. Where I think if you talk to, I, don't, I think if you talk to just an average person twenty, thirty years ago, people wouldn't really care about their health or their fitness. It's just something that wasn't thought about. And I think more and more people, whether that's millennials or people, or or baby boomers, are reaching an age where they're a lot more conscious about their health and performance. Mm. It's something that I think more and more people are interested in in either improving their performance or opt- or or. or or optimizing and, and preventing disease, um, and I think, that's and I think cool. what, yeah, absolutely, and I think that's probably one of the most important problems that our, our society should be thinking about. I know that you know we're based in Silicon Valley, and a lot of my smartest friends are working on making people click more ads on Facebook or Google, and we think you know there should be more smart people educating people around the craziness of the world of nutrition, which is hard to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start off with your personal, you know, exploration and entrance into the space. I know that, uh, you know, sort of in the beginning of your journey, that you were over 300 pounds, you were obese, had you know, health issues. What you know inspired you to uh, get up to speed and change, change your, change your life. It was, to be honest, my perception of what I needed to be successful. So I left school at 18. I'd acted from the age of 8 to 18. So I was kind of like a a childhood actor. My kind of path in theory was to go into drama school and chase the dream of being on the big stage, maybe going into movies. And I finished at 18 and I was obese. I was unhealthy. I had ADHD, IBS, I had eczema. And I I literally just looked at myself uh, and I compared myself to the people at the top of the industry. I looked at Tom Cruise, you know, all these people that we look up to in film and said, I'm not like those guys. I'm not slim. I'm not athletic. I'm not healthy. I'm not vibrant. And I literally woke up one day and I said, if I do not lose weight, I will not be successful in my career. And I think this is kind of an important thing that I try and coach in other people is literally trying to find this sentence, this line, this package, this emotive reason that's going to make you get up and change. And it's kind of it's kind of like being in business. It's kind of like, you know, I have to create this thing like you go on such a single minded mission. And that's where I ended up going. And the thing that actually got me into health and fitness is that I found the path really troublesome. So we all talk about what health and fitness is. I started to eat better. I started to run and I just wasn't losing any weight. And I just I didn't get how. And I basically had a big argument with my brother. I'm the older brother and I tease him because that's my 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 right. And he, your job. He, kind yeah. of, he kind of fought back one day and he said, you're not so perfect. You know, you're really overweight. And I was like, wow, yeah, you're right. And at that point, I just had to stand back and I just I had to be critical. I was like, I need new ideas here. I need new ways of thinking. 
So I joined a gym, and I, at the moment, at the, at the time, I hadn't joined a gym. I was just running and doing my own thing. And I happened to fall into the hands of a great trainer. He sat me down and he said, "Hey, let's do you know a little bit of weights, a little bit of less running. Um, let's try and clean up your diet, make it a bit more natural." And he recommended this book to me, "How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy" by Paul Check, uh, based out of uh, California, San Diego. Amazing guy, amazing practitioner. I bought the book on Amazon. I read it within a week. I applied it, and I lost four stone in four months um that's a lot wow. of weight and yeah that just inspired me and i was like wow this stuff's really cool and i was kind of like battling with the the acting identity and the fitness identity and i kind of just sat in limbo for a while and after a while my girlfriend said to me hey why don't you why don't you chase the fitness thing if you're not sure about acting go into fitness so i trained to become a trainer uh, a nutritionist a masseuse i worked as a practitioner and I just felt my calling was bigger. I was not satisfied just coaching people one to one. But I didn't know what it mean. I didn't. I didn't understand it yet. So I went to uni. Uh, I did a degree in uh, human performance. And while I was at uni, I then saw this rise in the tech space and people being online. And this this Facebook thing was blowing up. And you know, I was like, perhaps I can do my job on the internet. And in 2009, right. I set up my first uh, nutrition coaching business on uh, the internet called yourdietadvisor.co.uk. It was a massive flop. Um, I learned all my lessons or a lot of lessons there. <laughs> and then I kind of rebuilt the concept in 2010 into body type nutrition, which still exists today. And ever since then, I've just been moving up and trying to educate people in this world of uh, kind of wellness, health, performance, uh, and mindset for people to live their best life. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I think that's inspiring to, to be able to like make such big changes. I mean, I think a lot of people, perhaps you know, have some direction and in, in, in some notion of what it means to be healthier. But I think getting educated and up to speed, and also just like being having the discipline to, to pull through. And, and, and I, I know, like you know, eighty pounds in four months is a, a big number uh, you know what were the you know what was the routine there um you know i think a lot of people can you know have a, a get on a diet or commit to exercising for a couple weeks and they fall off what, what do you think was a big difference there uh the big thing is i found out that i was intolerant to dairy and gluten so i, I removed them from the diet the, my diet ended up being quite sort of what we would call paleo, I suppose. It became very, very natural. Nothing kind of right. unnatural went into my body. I started lifting weights. I started to kind of, you know, look to kind of grow muscle at the same time. And, and they were really the kind of key things. And I think, you know, from what I know now, I cut it. I cut out carbohydrates at the time. You know, I was on a very low carb diet and that would have naturally reduced my calorie intake, which is obviously key for weight loss. Right. So they were the key things. And, you know, in terms of vitality, cutting out gluten and dairy were key for me in achieving a greater level of vitality. Now, just to note, I have these, I have both these food groups in my diet now, so I, I no longer see them as a problem. But at the time, they were a big problem for me. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like you've evolved your routine over time. And it seemed like, you know, what, you know, what, what is sort of your, your go-to regimen at this point? I mean, it sounds like you keep up to speed on the latest nutrition and, and diet and, and personalize it to your results. And I think that's probably one of the most important things that uh, in the biohacking community that we care about. I think there's a lot of people that say, hey, do one, two, three, and get sort of these like magical results. But I think a lot of it is personalized on your own 
genes you know a certain diet's gonna react somewhat differently for you to me uh so measuring you know your blood glucose blood ketones you know getting your metabolic panel and getting all those levels is like a, a, a way to gut check whether interventions one does on yourself uh, is actually working for you or not so how did you evolve your your your, your regimens and what kind of checks and in 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 blood results or or were you measuring some of these metrics or was weight the primary metric that you were measuring sure um so early days it was kind of weight but i'm i'm a very yeah. intuitive person um i i okay. listen to me and i trust myself and i i've learned to trust myself because you know, you can get all the information from other people that, that you want. And, you know, you've just brought right. up this topic of individualization. I have right. to listen to me. I have to listen yep. what, you know, the perfect sleep window is for me and the, the right kind of foods and when enough training is enough and that I need to back off and rest. And you, you're kind of probably going to, you know, dislike me in a way in the fact that you probably want a good handful of kind of biohacks for me. And I know this show has had so many amazing people when it comes to biohacking. But, you know, I've never really looked to monitor my blood glucose level over time. I've played around with this stuff and I've done it with clients, but I don't do it myself. The same with ketones, the same with really periodization of training around heart rate variability. I don't do any of this stuff on myself because I just listen. And I have these metrics in my environment where I know that I maybe need to rest. So, for example, if I know that I've done too much exercise, if I walk up a flight of stairs and I feel like my heart rate is racing, I know I'm, I can't train today. I know that <laughs> my, my, yep. my, my, um, my heart rate variability is too high. I don't need a gadget for that. I can just feel it. It's intuitive. Um, mm -hmm. It's the same with my breakfast. Like I know I'm not really that great on too many carbs at breakfast. So I naturally gravitate towards a lower carb breakfast and bring carbs right. later on in the day. So it's all these little things I'm just constantly listening. But I think for me, the key thing and the one thing that I just cannot avoid is a lack of sleep. Sleep for me okay. is just the number one thing that affects everything. It affects my work performance, my workouts, my relationships, my sex life, everything. It affects everything, yeah. and it's the one thing that I want to get concrete and everyone that pays attention to my work because it's the easiest thing to skip out on, but it's the one thing that affects everything. So how do you maintain that block? I'm curious. Like I think a lot of times people ask, you know, what are your sleep hacks? I mean, is yeah, I'm curious. So like, there's a protected time. How do you protect it? So technology is the first thing. Technology is off from a good uh, half an hour, minimum half an hour before I go to bed. Uh, phone goes off, technology, screens and stuff. And yeah. I'll be reading, I'll be talking to my girlfriend, I'll maybe do some uh, stretching. I might do kind of um, a little bit of kind of guided meditation, but I find I'm quite a meditative person anyway. I practice meditation quite a lot. And I find that I can quite easily drop myself uh, into a meditative state and be quite calm and listen to my kind of breathing. Um, Pre-bed as well is a time that I like to get a little bit of reading in. We all love reading, learning, progressing ourselves. So I'll try and get, you know, 20 minutes of reading in. And for me, you know, if I get to bed by like 10 and I'm asleep by half 10, I only really need about six, six and a half hours to feel optimal. I find if I go to bed later, I need longer in bed to feel better the next day. So if I can get into bed by 10, half 10, I'm up by like, you know, five. And that's great for me because if I can work from five till nine when the world's still sleeping, I'm winning. Yeah. And those are like the best times to work because no one's up, no one's bothering yes, you. Exactly. <laughs> Phone's not going off, not needed, yeah. no emergencies. 
it's, it's, it's blissful project time. Yeah. So when do you do your workouts? Because for me, I find that doing workouts in the early morning are, 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 are really good for me for maintaining my workout routines where, you know, if you're doing it after work or during work, that's always kind of awkward. After work, there's like a you know dinner meeting or friend's birthday party that blows out your workout. So I tend to structure my workouts in the morning. I'm, I'm curious, how do you structure out your day? Sure. Um, I like my training to finish my day. So okay. I might get up at like five, half five. I'll work, you know, till let's say two, three, four, five, six o'clock. And then I'll train late afternoon. Uh, I'm also a rugby player. So we quite often train at night, like seven to nine p.m. So some of my training is quite late at night, uh, which is a bit of a problem sometimes for my sleep. But I have to kind of just manage that the best I can. But right. yeah, I hate training in the morning. I only train in the morning if I'm traveling away. Because like like I've just said, like morning is my sacred time. I get up, I do projects, then I'll turn on my phone, then I'll engage in my day, meetings, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then I'll go train and then I'll say, right, I'm off. The day is done. I'll go, I'm now going out for a drink or cinema or whatever. Um, right. So yeah, for me, it's late afternoon. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm actually curious. So in terms of, you know, some of the interesting you know, trends that we see in our community are people, a lot of people gravitating towards ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting. Um, I'm curious in, in your practice and in, in your reading, have you applied those techniques or, or what are some broader techniques that, you know, you know, that, that you, you find successful, not only for yourself, but perhaps, you know, a, a number of your clients? Sure. So for me, as a nutritionist, every diet has to be applied to the environment in the right kind of context. So I have practiced ketogenic dieting and intermittent fasting for long periods of time in the past. And I don't do them anymore because for me, it doesn't fit my context. So right now, I am a rugby player. It's a very explosive sport. It's very glycolytically demanding sport. Yes. I do a lot of weightlifting. I do running. I'm canoeing. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of explosive long duration exercise. So a ketogenic diet for me is not optimal. Now, if I was to change my training, let's say I was to just do maybe a bit of walking, canoeing, lifting weights, maybe two, three, four times a week. Being on a ketogenic diet and fasting for me is fine. It would work. It can work. Right. Um, I do very much appreciate the cognitive benefits of fasting and ketogenic dieting. Like you get a very balanced sense of, um, you know, just mental well-being and focus and concentration. I do appreciate that. But yeah. also, I'm quite a sociable character. I also like beer. Um, and <laughs> you know, for me, a ketogenic diet is not a sociable diet. And right. I think I've played around with a lot of different diet principles that I know how to get the best out of my body and my brain when I want it. So I kind of mentioned that I'm quite low carb in the morning. I'll kind of almost be sort of, I don't want to say keto for the morning because I'm not keto, but I'm, you know, I'm low carb for the first part of the day because it works well for me mentally. Then I know that I'm going to train later on in the day. So I might have two meals that are low carb a higher carb meal, and then a high carb in the evening sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just about matching my needs. I think I think that's actually very well put. I think, you know, talking about, you know, sort of like, I think a lot of people look for like simple answers. This is the best diet for everyone for all use cases. And I think you're hitting it on the spot. Um, yeah, like glucose isn't like necessarily 
evil, all evil thing. Because yeah, as you mentioned, for explosive anaerobic moves like sprinting, like like moves and in, in plays you do in rugby, you want glucose. You want things that f- yeah fuel uh, anaerobic performance. Mm-hmm. And if you're eating full keto or fasting, you're draining all your glycogen reserves. You can't be effective in those types of moves. So I think absolutely. I think I think that that's something that I think people need to get broader awareness on where I think diet when you're optimizing or optimizing for certain use cases, right? Like if you're trying to lose weight or you're, you know, careful about managing insulin, maybe keto is, is, is something to look at. But if you're looking to do, you know, heavy power lifting or rugby, for example, or, or running hundred meter sprints, uh, having glucose is, is probably more effective for what your goals are. I think Absolutely. one of the things that often gets negated when we talk about diet, diets as a whole, we, we quite often talk about, you know, carbohydrates and fats are always a big topic of discussion yep. and protein comes into it. But when we look at the diets and what we see as optimal and this kind of contention point, which is really health, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at health. And this yep. is a prominent argument at the moment because uh, the topic of vegan Nutrition, veganism is, is very hot on everyone's lips. And there's yep. these arguments that I had to say, well, if you go vegan, you feel amazing, you feel alive. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> true. But what was the diet before? You know, right. was someone eating an omnivorous diet that was full, abundant in fruit and vegetables? I'm not talking about the government's five a day. I'm talking about eight, 10, 12 fruits and vegetables a day. And for me, I think that's one of the things that really is not driven home enough. I see it in myself. I know the difference when I'm eating five fruit and veg a day compared to when I'm eating 12. Like I try and eat, a, uh, drink a green smoothie every day. I'm a massive fan of my Nutribullet where I'll put avocado and spinach and lime and cucumber and whiz that all up. You know, all these little things around fruits and vegetables hacked, I think they're it's incredibly, I know we all value it, but I don't think we push it enough because it's almost not sexy to talk about. But I swear, if people start eating 8, 10, 12 portions of fruits and veg a day, you're going to notice the difference. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think I think it's interesting because I think when when you when you almost choose any specific diet, that's probably better than just like the average diet that someone is consuming, especially if they're overweight to begin with. Right. Like if you're going vegan or keto or paleo and you're just restricting out like like soda and like coca-cola or something like you're gonna get some improvements no matter what because those are just you're just basically cutting out like clearly bad things and then i think from there it's like about optimizing for specific use cases and i think in in a lot of senses yeah like if you're intaking 12 servings of fruits and vegetables you're probably not eating some crap and then of course you're gonna feel a lot better mm. um yeah i think one thing um i'm quite passionate about kind of talking on and i know i think a lot of the guests that have been on your show before might have talked about caffeine a bit i'm a very big fan of a low caffeine diet interesting and the reason why i like this is i like to try and put the body into a state of equilibrium wherever possible so i like balance like you've mentioned blood glucose we've mentioned ketones if I can get even balance all the time, I like that. So when I get up in the morning, my body doesn't have a need for caffeine. Like it's not screaming yeah. at me. I'm not sitting there going, oh, I'm not a human. I'm not able to function if I don't have caffeine. So I don't have it. I just have a decaf, organic black coffee. I maybe put some cream in it, maybe some milk, whatever. And I'll, and I'll have that. Why? Because when I want caffeine, I want it to work. 
And as we yep. age okay. and the more we have it, we lose sensitivity. It's like yep. anything. It's like I always want to have tricks in the bag. Now, for the person that drinks two, three, four, five, six cups of coffee a day, when you need that extra boost, caffeine cannot give you that boost because you're not yep. sensitive enough to it. But if I have 200 milligrams of caffeine, I'm off my tits. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm up there because my body is really sensitive to it. And yeah. it's like loads of these things that we play around with. And I know that um, nootropics is a far bigger area of discussion in America because it's a lot right. more widely used. We don't have the kind of free roam and use of it in the UK that you guys do. But I like having tricks in the bag. Those days yeah. when the, you don't feel great. Like last night, I was um, I only had four hours sleep yesterday. And I had some tricks in the bag that I could use so that today I didn't feel like crud. Now, how right. many people have those tricks in the bag because they're not doing the groundwork well enough? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a good point. Like, I think we, I think especially coffee, two billion cups of coffee are consumed a day. So most people are caffeine dependent, right? Like, you're no longer getting a performance improvement on caffeine. You're just building up to to normal with your caffeine use. So I'm actually curious, like, so when do you use your caffeine? It sounds like you use caffeine when you're sleep deprived or during, you know, matches, rugby games. Like, you know, when when do you do, you know, those boosts? So I, if I'm feeling kind of a bit tired, um, I'll, right. I'll probably have a little low dose of caffeine mixed with theanine. Um, right. So I'm, I'm a big fan of like white tea, green tea, black tea, because yeah. the balance is good. Um, then before the gym um, or before a rugby game, but really, it, it's being safe for when I need it. Yeah. What other tips do you have? I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, you sound like there's multiple, tri you know, tricks in your, your tool bag here. So, uh, yeah. So, so basically, not being be becoming dependent on caffeine, I think, is something that we could all aspire towards. I think most people don't want to have a caffeine habit. It's just like something that is uh, <laughs> people just get used to. What else is in the tricks? Um, in terms of my tricks, I I'm a very kind of I'm a big fan of really ramming home the basics and getting people to really admit to themselves where their lifestyle is stopping them from doing the basics properly. Now, I think okay. uh, a common trend that we'll often see in business owners, and I can I can see it in myself mildly, is that we potentially have, quite often have these kind of extreme personality traits. And we have these habits that we kind of, we have to do. We have to do these things. Like, and there might be people that get up and they do their 5 a.m. cardio without fail. And I'm a big, big fan of doing things properly. It's like, for example, when I get up tomorrow morning, I want to be in an optimal zone. I want to be able to work on the project that I've got tomorrow morning. So what do I need to do today to put myself into that optimal place? Are there some things that I maybe need to tweak today? And exercise is one of them because exercise is something in the modern world that potentially we're not all recovering from effectively. So we know that the human body has incredible capacity to exercise. Look at professional athletes. They're training 10, 15, 20, 25 hours a week of training load, depending on their sport. These guys build their lives around recovery. That's their job. They're literally a full-time recovery person. They sleep, yeah. they nap, they eat, they put on electrodes, ice, ice yeah. baths, magnesium therapy, massages, everything. You and me don't have that. People have got jobs, kids, stress, lack of sleep, all that kind of stuff. And right. what I always say to people is, and I use this as a litmus test, and I do a lot of public speaking. I'll stand in front of an audience and I'll say, hands up if you go into 
80, 90 percent of your training sessions in the gym feeling 70 to 80 percent. And nearly 70, 80, 90 percent of the audience puts their hands up. So what does that mean? We've got a mild state of overtraining. People are always going into training at suboptimal. And I say to most people, tell me how many times a day, uh, how many times a week you're training. And most people are training nearly every day with a pretty high intensity, usually at the same type of day, usually very similar training. And I say to people, okay, what's the one, number one anxiety that you have of not training tomorrow? And for most people, it's that they'll get fat. That's the genuine number one anxiety they feel if they don't train they will get fat because training is a control mechanism to help with weight, right? Okay, yeah. But we know that calories in, calories out determines fat loss or fat gain. So if I said to that person, right, your body needs 3,000 calories. Tomorrow, you're not going to exercise. What's the one thing that you'll change? You'll reduce your calorie intake. Like, for example, I didn't train today. Couldn't get to the gym. So I ate less today. I ate 400 calories net less Tomorrow, I'll eat nearly a thousand calories more because I'm going to be in the gym for an hour and a quarter and I've got an hour and a half of rugby training. My exercise output is way higher tomorrow. Yep. So we need to remove this anxiety by applying science. And the reason why I talk about this is the body adapts from intensity. And if you can't go into the gym and lift the PR or sprint and push the body, it's not going to adapt and you're going to stay at the same level. And how many people do we know that are saying, oh, I'm not getting stronger, I'm not getting more muscular, I'm not getting leaner? Well, we're not being able to apply training intensity. I would yeah. much rather someone train three to four days a week and was able to smash it rather than training every day and being at 80%. Also, you get that sense of personal satisfaction, right? You actually leave that workout going, I just nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I think it's a yourself. great point. I mean, there's so many of my exercise, you know, it's it's just built into your routine. Like, this is good for me. I should do it, and I'm gonna just kind of ship the workout in and not. But I, I think you bring up a very good point, right? Like, if you're not pushing, like, you know, 100%, you know, to your your to your thresholds, then are you really stressing your body enough to actually improve in terms of strength or speed or, or whatever metrics you're trying to optimize for? I think it's a great point. Mm. And I'm gonna argue no. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense, right? If you're just always kind of like in 70% mode and you're not pushing yourself, you're just, you're, yeah, I think that's why a lot of people plateau. They get con, they get complacent with their exercise routines. Yeah, and I'll throw a caveat in there because there'll be some people saying, oh, well, I need to go out on base runs or base rides because they're like endurance athletes or whatever. That's sure. absolutely fine. That's very specific scientific programming. But I'm talking about the people that are really just exercising to just look good, feel good perform good right that's interesting so in terms of when you do exercises i know there's interesting discussion between high intensity interval training versus uh you know what what are you know, you know obviously it, it depends on what your end outcomes are but what are your current you know favorite types of routines and workouts are you focused on uh high reps you know low weights you know you know one massive rep for super high weight you know what, what what are the key routines that you do in your workouts so um i talked about my diet and my right. training is very much the same it fits the exact purpose i need it to so right now i'm on a diet i'm just trying to get a little bit leaner um kind of on a bit okay. of a six week uh, diet so i'm doing a lot of kind of like quite short high intensity cr you, well maybe call them crossfit style workouts 
So I'm picking like uh, two wads. I'm doing them back to back and quite high intensity, big calorie burn in and out of the gym in 30, 40 minutes. It's also perfect for me with rugby right now because I'm trying to improve my threshold, my capacity. Um, right. So, and, and that's going to be more than enough to maintain my muscle mass. I'm not going to lose muscle mass on that. There'll be periods of time where I'll go through kind of just doing a lot of kind of like eight to 15 rep kind of more hypertrophy work, you know, looking at various areas of my body and stuff. And then now and again, I'll go through a strength cycle, but I don't like strength training that much. I kind of, I'll be honest, I get bored doing it because you end up being in the gym for quite a while with quite a low outcome. Like you might go into the gym and spend half an hour deadlifting because that takes right. you a while to warm up, work in sets. I haven't got time for that. I'm bored already. Um, <laughs> so for me, it very much um, applies. So, so do you do like then like traditional lifts or are you doing just all functional, you know, body weight type stuff then like crossfit style i'm, I'm doing it i'll be honest i'll be doing I'm, I'm doing a bit of everything squats okay. deadlifts the big movements i'll do crossfit stuff i'll do stuff like flipping tires uh throwing ropes around because i'm i'm quite happy with my level of muscle mass i'm quite happy with my overall strength i mainly exercise to maintain um my performance as a rugby player but also right. to enjoy it like today right. I went for a 20 minute swim and that was it. And that's oh, all I wanted okay. to do. I didn't want to lift yeah. weights. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to swim. Whereas yeah. tomorrow I want to get angry and I want to lift some weights. I know it. I can okay. feel it coming. <laughs> so again, I just kind of listen to my body and I know that, do you know what? If I get three or four really good sessions in this week, I'm going to tick that off the box and I'm going to have done well. Because I know that my baseline variable, which is my nutritional intake, will always support my training outcome. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good mindset to have because I think I, I would I know for myself a lot of times if I'm just I, I, I just <coughs> ship in the workouts and I think it's like you come in full intentionality to really be pushing your limits. I think you get a lot more effectiveness and results from from the from that time spent, right? Like if you're going to spend an hour uh maybe you instead of 50% effort on that hour just have 100% effort in half an hour and that is, you know might be ending up being more much more time efficient in terms of ROI on time mm. I'm, I'm curious um, in American football uh, a huge study came out around uh, tra traumatic brain injury uh, and essentially 118 of 119 retired NFL players mm. um, I know rugby is a very uh, contact uh, heavy sport I'm curious is there similar concerns um, around brain, you know, concussion? And if so, what, you know, how do you look to mitigate damage there? And also just general wear and tear. Are you doing anything special there to, uh, you know, I mean, you guys are just tackling each other without, you know, much padding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, proper sport, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a big concern in the UK. We've had um, some more stuff in kind of higher profile games happened where more, yeah. more laws have come in. Um, they've now stopped younger individuals in the UK uh, doing full contact rugby kind right. of as early okay. as they used to. And now when someone goes down with a head injury during a game, like there's whole teams that are running onto the pitch, like way more kind of medical staff you know, to try and kind of mitigate this. So there is a lot more awareness around it. Um, I think in the UK, I think if you get either five or six concussions within a certain space of time, you're advised to retire. 
and I know people around me have retired for that reason. I am very fortunate that I, I am in a very low risk position on the field. So I'm a scrum half, so I'm the guy that runs everywhere, passes the ball and shouts a lot of people. So, okay. you know, the chances of me getting a head on collision or anything bad to the head is very low. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I also feel that it will prolong my um, longevity in the sport because I will get less injuries and impact because I'm not in a high impact right. position. Right. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of emerging research around ketones possibly being an adjunct for TBIs. Um, I think there's an interesting uh, rat model study on, 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 on sort of smacking rat rat heads and seeing that you know exogenous ketones are able to recover and rescue damaged neurons. So I was actually just curious, you know, is there, you know, you know. You know, one could theoretically apply that study on from animal models into into human performance. You know, would one um, look at ketones as preventative as part of a diet uh, in in a TBI potential situation? But it, it does kind of trade off between if you're coming into a game, you probably want to be heavily uh, carb carped up as well. So it might be sort of antithetical to performance. But I'm just curious if there's any sort of nutritional uh, programming around prevent injury prevention that you that you think about and consider not not when it not so the environment that you just given I think you know the research has been done has shown that ketones is potentially um, good in the healing process um, yeah so in terms of a preventative I don't actually see that there's a mechanism where ketones would act as a present preventative because you think it's a collision based injury neurons are damaged and then there's the yep. environment that's now helping repair that so actually yeah. being in ketosis sort of while being a rugby player um i don't see how that is going to prevent the, the yeah it wouldn't necessarily prevent but it would potentially so the pathway that is hypothesized is that uh when you when the brain when the neuron gets a tbi uh catecholamines are released and yep. that blocks glucose uptake and uh that's why ketones as an alternate fuel could essentially start fueling these uh neurons from from you know from t, t equals zero as opposed to having to you know sort of generate uh ketones over time with diet or, or, or fasting so that would be the mechanism yeah you're not going to be you know if you're getting smacked in the head mm -hmm. your, your brain's taking damage no matter what it's about how fast you can have uh, a therapeutic in there which I could could I guess you know be interesting yeah I think the thing is any performance individual needs to look at the primary outcome that they want and that is performance and yeah. you know there might be some kind of advantages or rationales for like a cyclic approach to yeah. these methods like cyclic ketogenic diet but you know I don't think it's going to be taken up by many sportsmen because they're in a glycolytically demanding sport you know, they, they right. need carbohydrates to perform. It's, right. it's not going to be efficient for them to be in a ketosis right. diet. So I think, you know, and, and the kind of mentality around rugby, you know, it's about performance until you have to think about longevity, until yeah. you have to think about prevention. So, Absolutely. you know, there's, there's a big mindset barrier there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's a professional, right? They're there to win. You're not there to prevent mm. injury. The, as you said, the primary goal is to win, win some games. Um, anything else in terms of like, I, I mean, I think you're just dropping interesting, you know, knowledge bombs here. Anything else in terms of workouts or I know you mentioned magnesium as something that you think is sort of under, under discussed. Any, anything, anything else that you've come across in your self experiments and your conversations that, um, 
you, you, you think are under 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 knowledge under exposed sure i think yeah magnesium i'm a massive fan on um yeah. i recommend so in people that exercise fairly intensely i recommend a baseline oral intake of magnesium anywhere from like three to five hundred milligrams a day uh, of a good bioavailable source uh, glycinate by glycinate citrate and then I recommend uh, transdermal uh, magnesium, uh, topically mm. applied to the muscles that you've primarily worked in that training session. So if I went in the gym and did a, a primarily upper body workout, I'd rub the magnesium on my upper body. I find that really good. It's something that I swear by. There is very limited research in how it actually works and why it works. We don't actually know. And don't get me wrong, we're, there's plenty of hypotheses. But right. I kind of hang my hat on very anecdotal data to say that I recover so much quicker uh, locally by using transdermal magnesium. So I'm a huge fan. Um, I actually posted a research study on my Facebook page today about um, magnesium's role in high performance individuals in um, kind of supporting the immune system um, and uh, reducing the impact of interleukin-6. So... Hmm. That was a really kind of quite profound study in people yeah. not getting ongoing, uh, you know, illnesses and having suppressed immune system, which is obviously always a problem in people that exercise a lot because we suppress yeah. the immune system temporarily. So big fan of magnesium. Um, the obvious. Yeah, I think I think some of the data is that most people are chronically under uh, deficient on magnesium. I yes. think the last statistic I saw was like seventy plus percent of people are underdosed. So are you recommending like even like RDA recommended daily allowance is not enough? or like you're sort of super dosing on magnesium, especially on workouts. I'm, I'm curious. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go as far to say super dosing, but sort of two to three times the RDA seems okay. to be doses that I'm playing around with in very active individuals. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I, I've never heard of the transdermal effect. So you oh, really, like you recover. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think we looked at uh, most of the studies are on oral. So I'm actually curious yep. around, so, you know, transdermal magnesium, you feel like you get faster, quicker muscle recovery. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, um, so I, I own a supplement company in the UK called Awesome Supplements. And yeah. it's actually a supplement that we have as part of our range, which is transdermal ZMA. And yeah, you're literally, you know, a couple of squirts, rubbing it into your yeah, shoulders. Okay. Yeah. And it seems to take effect very quickly. Um, it's something that you have to apply before the sleep window. So it's not mm. something that, so let's say I trained, went to bed, woke up the next day, sore, and you rub it on, it doesn't do anything. So it seems to, my theory is, is it relaxes the muscle, allows for greater blood flow, and that in turn helps the muscle locally recover greater. That's okay. my theory at the moment. But as I've said, the research is very thin on the ground. If that if, if it does increase blood flow, then I could see it, you know, allowing the muscle to flush lactic acid quicker and obviously bringing nutrients to, re to repair. So mm -hmm. if, if that mechanism works, it's, it, it, it stands to reason. Mm, it does. Whether it yeah. does, I, I don't know. Um, I would love to find, fund research, but funding research is just hugely expensive. And the yeah. quotes that I've had back to get it done, I just I just can't do it. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's something that you know we as a company have looked at and are in our in process of doing. And I understand absolutely. Um, I think with a lot of trials, it's just, when you're dealing with human subjects, um, so many variables. You need to get you know at least 30, 30 40 people in the trial to get enough sample size to get mm. statistical significance. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think that's also the part of the broader confusion around a lot of like nutrition studies where sample sizes are small, uh, populations, you know, vary in terms of, um, you know, you know, if you're studying, you know, Caucasian males with, you know, African, you know, black females, I mean, it's just a different, so many different populations to be studying and, and mm. clearly like genetic variants, uh, needs to be accounted for that just isn't done because research is so hard and slow to get through ethics and, and the costing. Um, so magnesium, I, I, did, I sort of interrupted you in, in terms of other hacks uh, besides magnesium. What else is interesting? Yeah, the other fundamentals, magnesium, vitamin D, uh, fish oil, um, zinc, and they're probably the big ones. And again, that's, that's from looking at the research. We look at the research yeah. and we see that most people are deficient in those. Yeah, absolutely. And then nature. I think we don't, we don't maybe talk about nature enough. I think, you know, getting outside is, you know, think about the last time people truly got outside for like a proper <laughs> full on day. They yeah. always come back going, oh, I should do that more often. Oh, that felt amazing. Yeah. You know, when you go down to the lake or the sea or the forest, you know, actually yeah. being able to take those, you know, days away now and again to get outside and properly switch off the phone and, you know, absorb in nature. Um, I think that is hugely valuable. Yeah, I, I think so. That, funny that you mentioned that the team here had a had a week retreat down in Venice Beach uh, near L.A. And you got a lot of sun. And I think, um, yeah, we weren't designed. We weren't evolved to stay in big, uh, big gray boxes all day long in front of computers and sitting mm -hmm. on the sitting on our butts right so i think absolutely getting the sun most people are vitamin d deficient as you as you mentioned and that's hugely impactful for mood and immunity and it seems like yeah again like like 70 80 percent of people are deficient in d mm. which is generated from from sun exposure um Cool. I mean, I think that's an awesome snapshot in, in what's going on in your mind and some of the interesting areas that you're doing research. Any sort of shout outs in terms of other projects that people in our audience and, and listeners out there, if they're more interested in, in following what you're up to, you know, what, what are the channels to reach out? What are the channels to find you on? Sure. Um, I'm very easy to find. Uh, ben Coomber all over the Internet. C-O-O-M-B-E-R. Uh, the UK's number one health and fitness podcast. We've done over 274 episodes uh, at the time of recording this show. So there's a lot of information there. Um, Absolutely. We do online nutrition courses. So that's kind of our bread and butter. We have a nutrition yeah. education company called Body Type Nutrition. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, Facebook is my main stomping ground. It's a very kind of educational place for me, Facebook. So Facebook and the podcast and uh, maybe my Instagram stories might be interesting for a few people. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Love to stay in touch and, and see how things progress. And if there's a way to collaborate on research studies, we're, we're, you know, we're ramping up a lot of interesting research partnerships. So, you know, I, I think that's, I think, where the next phase of the industry is going, where there's, uh, there's, people are getting smarter and smarter and I think people want more and more data. Mm. And, and I think there's like the intu intuition side, like, Hey, do we feel better? And I think that's important. And it's like, you know, and, and for the skeptics, if you don't believe in, you know, you know, Ben or my, my intuition, we'll look at the data. And I think that's going to, what's going to take, um, in my theory, at least is what brings behaviors from, small groups, niches, and communities into, hey, this is something that everyone in the world should be adopting. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, I, I think we could probably all agree that everyone in the world can be healthier and be a little bit more 
cognizant of what the routines are. I think if you look at the trends of obesity, metabolic syndrome, it, they're, 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 they're scary. So I think if there's anything that, you know, folks like yourself, educating people, bringing the message out, inspiring people to improve their health, I think that's net good for the entire world. I so agree. I appreciate the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's been amazing. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. Cheers, Thank ben. you. Goodbye. Yep. Awesome conversation with Ben. Um, it's always interesting when I talk to other folks that run podcasts because um, it's interesting where people's focuses and interests are. And it seems like, you know, you know, we're on our podcast, in our community, we're perhaps more engineering, more metrics driven. And clearly with Ben, um, it, you know, I think it's important to also not lose touch on an intuitive side, right? Like, um, Yes, I think numbers are objective, you know, you know, something that's measurable, something that we, you know, use across different specific samples. But, you know, end of the day, our lives are N equal one experiments, right? So optimize for what feels good for yourself. As always, um, please continue the comments and feedback on our podcast. Uh, Zill. Uh, we'll be responding and, and, and myself and we'll, re we'll be responding and, and, and getting everything coordinated. Um, as always, if there's any requests for guests or specific topics, please reach out. And in the meantime, uh, please subscribe and follow us on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube and SoundCloud. Thanks so much. See you next week.